up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com No, it's Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Hello, welcome to Superman Forever Radio. I'm your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And here we are at episode 15, which is not the episode 15 I initially thought it would be. Now, of course, normally what we do is we talk a little bit of news. We kind of go over a character. We look at Superman the Animated Series. And then we get into the reviews of the comic books from 2006 to the present. And at this point, we are just barely into 2007. Except that's not what's going to happen this week. Not that it's a bad thing. Uh, Mostly what happened was uh, this week was the week I was finally caught up and I could get back to my regular uh, podcast producing schedule and have things ready to go on Friday and record and have it ready to upload, which hasn't been the case since the beginning of the year, just because my schedule's been incredibly hectic. Unfortunately, my schedule interfered again. And what happened was my work uh, flipped some things around on me, so my notes are about half done, so episode 16 will pick up where we normally were. However, it's very fortuitous, primarily because this week we're going to talk about All-Star Superman. I'm not going to talk about the movie yet. I have seen it, and I have some thoughts written down, and we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But um, just because it has not come out yet, and I I feel very strongly that doing a spoiler-laden review, even in a form as uh, malleable as podcasting where you can push the pause button or come back to it a few days later, I just think it doesn't need to be done. Um, that's not what this what this show is meant to do, and that's that would you know involve a lot of spoiler warnings. So uh, next week we'll talk about the DVD, but this week we're actually going to talk about all twelve issues. Now it won't be quite the same format as I normally use, where we do a synopsis, we talk about the story, talk about the art, go page by page with some notes, and then kind of give it a final verdict. I I like All Star Superman. It's one of the best miniseries of all time, so I'm, it's, it's not something where I can be really objective. I have a few gripes about it, but primarily since we're going over 12 full issues, um, I'm not going to get, I'm just going to go page by page on some of the, the broader notes that I have. And I, so that's what we will be doing this week, and I think it's very good timing since All-Star Superman does hit DVD shelves Tuesday. So not what we expected, but not bad at all. And uh, also this week, um, this was just a very busy week. Um, I'm recording this on Sunday much later than I intended to. But uh, because I had obligated myself to my friends to go to HurleyCon, which is put on by Hurley's Heroes, which is a fantastic comic shop in Joplin, Missouri. I highly recommend them. If you're in Joplin, look them up. They're at 10th and Maiden Lane. You can put that into your GPS or ask directions 
They have back issues for 50 cents. They'll talk shop with you all the day. They actually know how to organize comics, which a lot of brick and mortar stores have moved away from. And they're actually true fans. And uh, I love going to that shop, make the hour drive from Springfield here where I live about normally about once a month, maybe a little bit less. It's hit, been hit or miss during the winter. But I go up there and visit them and I really enjoy them. And they put on a con convention. And uh, for the past few years, I've intended to go. Didn't get to go until finally, you know, yesterday, Saturday, which would be uh, February 19th. And I had a great time. I got a really nice Superman sketch, which you can actually see at supermanforever.com. By Lee Leslie, and Lee Leslie is a, a a comic artist who is phenomenal. He's a very nice guy. Really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, do yourself a favor and check out LeeLeslieComics.com, and you can actually see his online comic Rigby the Barbarian at RigbyTheBarbarian.com, which is linked at there at Lee Leslie. And uh, his wife uh, Bethany makes super uh, superhero aprons. Which was ironic because I had literally been talking to somebody about half jokingly about getting a Superman apron, but I'm planning on ordering one from her at some point. And while I was there, I got to talk some shop with uh, B. Clay Moore. Now, he wrote some of the last issues of Superman Confidential that deal with the Toy Man. That's not a spoiler, that's just what it is. And I bought some signed copies of Superman Confidential from him, and I check him out uh, and uh, had a chance to talk with the current Superman Batman writer Cullen Bunn. Who's, uh, his actual storyline, The Sorcerer Kings in Superman Batman, is on stands now. So go check that out. It was just, it was a good experience. Uh, got a lot of nice swag. I actually found a Mego diecast Superman there, as well as uh, just a few uh, odds and ends here that I found just to add to my collection. And uh, I just had a great time, so I wanted to say thank you to them. Uh, nice to go out and make an appearance. So yeah, check out Lee Leslie, look at Colin Bunn, uh, check those Batman and Superman Batman issues out, B. Clay Moore, uh, look, check out Superman Confidential, of course we'll be getting to those at some point. And also for you co toy collectors, um, check out itsalltrue.net. Uh, they have a DC Universe Classics and a Masters of, the Masters of the Universe Classics buying guides. And even knowing a lot of the information, it still helped me organize it. You could see wave by wave by wave, and they do a really great job. And I uh, got to see artist Amber Stone a few years ago. I actually bought one of her Superman sketches. I bought a print of it. And she does, uh, I guess by her own words, it would be baby versions. They're adorable. I recommend them. I love my Superman sketch. But that was uh, a great time. I just wanted to give a shout out to them. Also this week, uh, <laughs> it was kind of a n nice surprise to get my uh, mid in. I, got, I finally got a hold of a decent superpower Superman and Supermobile. And my edict on that has always been, I don't want one in the package because all I'm going to do is open it up and display it. I want one that looks a little bit played with, but I don't want one that is messed up. And I got finally got right in the middle road of those two. And the weird thing is, the Supermobile, of course Superman, that was one of my favorite toys from my youth. I love superpowers. And I literally remembered exactly how that felt in my hand, exactly what it was like to push that button down to you know, shoot out the, uh, the punching action. And it was just a nice bit of nostalgia. But let's go on. Um, before we jump into All-Star um, All Superman, I do have one piece of bad news. And that is I, I apparently messed up. The Metropolis Idol voting for this week. And a lot of you came out and voted. And I do appreciate that. So that's why <laughs> I feel awful. For some reason, I had two voting boxes on the, on the page. 
Every vote, I, if you hit, if you did vote, every vote went to only one of the polls. So I messed up. What I'm going to do is I'm not going to do Metropolis Idol this week. We'll wait and get back next week, and we'll just do all of round two at once. I'll just use multiple pages or something. But I do apologize sincerely. I I don't know why it worked fine when I initially set it up. Somewhere along the way, uh, something happened. So I do apologize for those of you that voted, and I don't want your votes not to count. So we will make that up next week, and I'll let you know how we're going to do that. And uh, moving on to some of the news that happened this week. We found out Connor Kent is coming to Smallville. Now, Cayman Stoll and I, when I went on his uh, Superman video podcast last week, both of us agreed that the Lex clone is, is not going to be Connor. Unfortunately, the producers of Smallville, they revealed, yes, indeed, it is Connor Kent, which is kind of confusing of how they're going to shoehorn that in with, what, eight episodes left? But that's one piece of news. I'm not going to get too far into that. It is what it is. And uh, the sad news that I really want to talk about, well, before we do that, um, if you haven't been out to your local bookstore or magazine stand, Henry Cavill is on the cover of Entertainment Weekly. It's the first time we've seen him since his casting. He's wearing a Superman shirt and kind of talks about some of the casting process that happened. So for those of you collectors out there who aren't aware, I'm sure most of you are, just uh, yeah, go out and take a look at that, get that, add that to your collection. And uh, let me get into the sad news. Before we get into All-Star Superman, uh, out of California, Joanne Siegel passed away this past Monday at the age of 93. Now, she was the widow of Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel. Now, the, her importance can't be understated because she was the original model used by Joe Schuster to design Lois Lane. And uh, as important, I mean, we talked literally last week about how important Lois Lane is to the Superman mythology, to Superman himself. Joanne Siegel is just as important to Lois Lane because who knows what we would have seen without her. And of course, you know, being she's, you know, been, she was by Jerry Siegel's side the whole time or Joe Schuster. Oh, wow. Jerry Siegel. <laughs> I'm not sure which one I said first. She was by Jerry Siegel's side the whole time that the legal action was happening and before. So she was definitely a big, uh, I, pillar of strength for him. I can see that. And, uh, you know, she, she really did bring something to the Superman mythology. So in a way it's like watching our, the original Lois Lane pass away. So it's a very sad passing and we, I want to send out condolences to the family and, uh, you know, we're a piece of our, a big piece of our Superman family is gone now. And I just hope, uh, I hope for comfort in this time for that family. Anyway, let's go ahead and move away from the sad stuff um, and move into All-Star Superman. Now, as I mentioned, I'm going to go through all 12, episodes, all 12 issues, so it's going to be pretty dense. And I'm going from notes I made uh, actually a couple months back. And I plan to do this episode at some point, so I've planned on fleshing those out a little bit. I uh, just kind of looked at them like, okay, they're pretty complete. So I'm going by some old notes. And uh, this is a little bit more, you know, fly by the seat of my pants than I'd prefer. So not necessarily, I just hope I don't come off sounding like an imbecile. I'll just be honest. But uh, going to go through all 12 issues, kind of, I'm not going to do the synopsis. So what I'd recommend is have your pause button ready, pull out those issues or the trade and read along with me and I'll give you some anal commentaries. And let's go ahead and jump right into Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly's All-Star Superman. 
Now, of course, Grant Morrison did write this with Frank quietly doing the art. Jamie Grant inked and colored this book with Phil Ballsman on letters. And the book was edited by, uh, pardon me, by Bob Shrek and Brandon Montclair. Of course, this was 12 issues. Began um, its cover date of January 2006, so it would have been late 2005. And this book did come out bi-monthly as opposed to, like, a year later, like All-Star Batman and Robin. Now, the book uh, was part of the All-Star line, which did include All-Star Batman and Robin that I just jokingly mentioned. But what the idea was is to get the top-tiered talent and tell top continuity-free stories. Just, uh, you're the top gun, run with it. And at a, you don't get much more talented than Grant Morrison. Now, normally, as a, his superhero stuff, it's hit or miss. Um, once you get Grant into where in an area where he can do his own thing, it's genius. Twelve issues, and it ran through 2008, so it does kind of eclipse into our post-Infinite Crisis era. So technically, even though it's not canon, it would still be a part of it. And, uh, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to this, so let's go ahead and get started. So where did All-Star Superman really begin? Um, really, if you look back, based on Grant Morrison's interviews, primarily with Newsarama, he talks about, you know, he had a project back in 1999 was DC One Million, which does kind of connect to this, and we're going to get to that way later in this episode. But uh, right around that time, Morrison and Mark Wade and Mark Millar actually pitched a project called Superman Now, also known, if you want to Google it, as Superman 2000. And they all did that along with Tom Payer. And there were a couple of ideas that were really inspired uh, by one night meeting a fan outside San Diego Comic-Con in 98 or 99 where he was just talking to this fan for hours. And he talked about the physicality. The guy actually looked like Superman. He was in an ill-fitting suit. And his physicality of sort of uh, what we're going to see on the cover here is what really sold him. And Grant just started making notes. And really the difference between what we see in Superman, uh, All-Star Superman, and some of Grant Morrison's other work is, to quote him, um, live performance type superhero books is what he normally does. Um, at this point, he wanted to do something for the ages. He almost a legacy, uh, just as he says, a big definitive statement. And that's really what we got, just about superheroes and life and everything. And when the All-Star Project started coming up, along with All-Star Batman with Frank Miller and uh, Jim Lee, which still has not been completed, um, the idea that the, it's a non-continuity thing really just appealed to him. He could do whatever you want, carte blanche. And he really felt at that point he was ready to do this story. And really, he pretty much had, uh, even though the book came out in 2005, he had the whole thing plotted in 2002. It even mentions that he had tiny colored sketches for all 12 covers. So he actually had this tightly weaved narrative ready to go right out of the gate. Now, since we're covering so much going into this, I'm not going to get as concise with my synopses as I normally would when we're going issue by issue, because we are covering 12 issues today. But let's go ahead and get started with All-Star Superman number one, and let's start with the cover. And there are two different versions, and the Frank Quitley version, Quitely, has him sitting on a cloud with his knees drawn up to his chest, and that's part of the physicality that Grant Morrison saw that night in that fan outside of San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, this, this cover needs to be placed next to the most iconic Superman covers of all time. I mean, we're talking Schuster's Action Comics number one, Neil Adams' cover to Superman 233 when he's busting open the chains, Superman number 75, um, even Superman number 14 where Superman is posing as an eagle 
perched on his arm, which has been, you know, just these are the ones that have been aped time and time again. I think for me, the serenity of the scene is what makes this stand out. Metropolis lies below the Daily Planet building in view, and Superman has this moment of peace before flying back into chaos and danger again. It feels intimate yet mysterious. I mean, what could he be grinning about? And how about the fact that the iconic chest shield is hidden? We see the symbol on the back of his cape, but it manages to be iconic without showing the bulk of his costume. There are certain pieces of Superman that just say Superman, and the symbol would be the biggest piece. Primarily, we get mostly just a hint of the red boots. Of course, we get the spit curl. So Frank Quitley, quietly did himself proud. The other covered All-Star Superman number one is the Neil Adams cover, and I have to be honest, I don't like this cover. Don't get me wrong, I love Neil Adams, but this cover just doesn't work for me. I mean, even though it does display the story's content a little bit better than the Quietly cover, I think Superman's position is awkward, the flare effects are distracting, and the veins on Superman's neck are a little too freaky, but that's just my opinion. So, moving on to page one, this is the origin page. There's been a lot of praise put on this, and I think it deserves it. I mean, we've seen the origin countless times, and we've touched upon those a few episodes back using this origin as a template. The major four points. The uh, Doom Planet, Desperate Scientists, Last Hope, Kindly Couple. That forms the foundation of each and every Superman origin. And considering this is yet another retelling, we don't need it again. This is not that story. And, uh, I mean, the, the planet goes boom, baby goes bye-bye, lands on Earth to be raised. And this right here, this is some good storytelling. He knew exactly what to do. We get the origin, plus we get, if you actually line it up, it actually forms a haiku with the big logo of Superman on pages 2 and 3, that spread. Which plays into a lot of what the story is really about, some of the rhythm in the story. And uh, I'm not... You know, I've had some problems with Grant Morrison's storytelling at some points. Not to be, you know, too hard on him, but I didn't like Batman Rip. I didn't like Final Crisis. But if you go back to The Invisibles, when he's allowed to really do what he wants to do without a lot of editorial interference, the man knows how to tell a story. So moving on to pages two and three, this is the money shot. Frank Quitely has been an acquired taste for me. My enjoyment of his art varies from character to character, honestly, kind of like Ethan Van Skyver. His Wonder Woman looks more Special Olympic than Olympian, but his Wolverine is hardcore. So when he was announced for, as the artist for All-Star Superman, I kind of shuddered until I saw the preview in Wizard Magazine. And it quietly nails it on the head. Uh, many times we see Superman with a dancer's body, toned but not bulky, and Ed McGinnis added a lot of bulk, but it was hard to imagine how the Man of Steel moved with those inflatable muscles. Quietly adds weight to Superman, a thickness which is actually tangible. But there is still grace. And this is simple image with its solar flares and Superman's pose creates yet another iconic image. Three pages in and three icons, including the cover. Another thing that Quietly does is add the right amount of age and weariness to Superman. I mean, this is, after all, Superman's been around the block many times, but he still has a few miles left on him. He looks like a veteran hero, but not over the hill. Over on page four, we jump right into the action. No setup, no need for one. The crap has hit the fan before we even crack the issue open. A little dialogue gives us what we need to know, that the man's mission to, manned mission to the sun is in danger, but it keeps going at a brisk pace. And speaking of dialogue, Luther's killing machine, suddenly nonchalantly remembering he was sent there to make kill, made me wet myself with laughter. Casual killing machines do that for me. 
with four small panels retreated to death courtesy of Lex Luthor. If that is death, it is glorious and terrifying. And also the bubbly sun effects in Quietly's backgrounds combined with Jamie Grant's digital colors actually seem to radiate heat. But I can't look at this page without sweating a little bit. So it's a little bit bothersome, but that's kind of that's good storytelling. Page 6. I have a confession. The girl narrating in the top panel with the glowing eyes is pretty hot. And uh, another note, how cool is it that the ship is called the Ray Bradbury? I had originally thought this was a reference to Fahrenheit 451. I was actually corrected. It's actually a reference to a short story by Ray Bradbury called Golden Apples of the Sun about an expedition to the sun. And it is panel 5, second from the left in the sequence, that sh- the bottom of the page that shows the intensity. We're told at 6,000 degrees, then Superman's face shows us. He's still sweating at this point. My adrenaline is pumping just reading this. If Christopher Nolan or David Goyer or Zack Snyder are listening, I highly doubt it, but hey, why not throw it out? If you're listening, this is how to start a Superman movie. Just jump in, get it going, explain in depth while the audience heart settles after the, the major action opening. And moving on to pages 8 and 11, we're back at the Daily Planet. Right in the midst of this epic nail-biter, we get a scene of exposition. Morrison is ramping up the tension here. This is exactly what he should be doing. Superman is on the sun with a failing ship full of astronauts and a Luthor killing machine, and we stall with a piece of exposition. This is actually our chance to breathe out, as things heat up, no pun intended, in the next few pages. The planet's staff, including Steve Lombard making his return to the pages of a Superman book, which he wouldn't do in continuity for uh, several, eh, from here it would be several years. And there, there's been a lot of things ripped off from this, just because this worked. Which is ironic, since the Superman Now project is what inspired this, and it was actually refused. And uh, basically the staff is musing about how big the sun is, as Lois is typing up the story before it happens. And I love that Lois is cavalier about the fact that Superman will triumph. Jimmy's super watch is a nice upgrade to the signal watch. It's basically the 21st century. He's he's wearing an iPhone on his wrist, which is exactly what he should be doing at this point. Because it's a nice throwback to the Silver Age with a modern twist, which is kind of a nice theme for this book. One detail that blows my mind is in panel 3. The name Quintum has the red point underneath Spell checked. That is a nice detail. Because right now, as I'm looking at my notes on screen, it's red underneath spell checked. Who thinks to put that in a, in a panel, really? That's glorious. And even though Perry's explaining yet another real estate scam by Luthor, it comes off as charming rather than cheesy and ends up being an afterthought by the next page. Just a nice reference to Superman the movie. And uh, moving right along, pages 12 to 13, Lex Luthor has been and may never be cooler than he is in this series, in this, uh, in these 12 issues. Never has he been that cool. He's smug, he's brilliant, and he's absolute evil incarnate. I love Grant Morrison's Lex Luthor. I can actually hear the monotone faux guilt as a snide, arrogant voice as he explains to General Lane that he blatantly screwed the government over. And on page 13, panel 4, the slight stammer as he says, I'm getting older and, and he isn't, suggests a boiling madness under the demeanor that we're going to see come out in a big way later on down the series. Quietly's facial expressions with the same panel seals the deal 
Luther realizes and states that if he doesn't kill Superman now, he never will. And I found myself actually believing, believing Luther would outright cut Superman's throat given the chance. He's no longer the cackling menace who can't seem to get it right. Morrison unleashes an evil that wasn't matched until Heath Ledger donned the purple suit and latex scars of the Joker in the Dark Knight. And again on page 16, this is a page that resonates one of my favorite qualities about Superman. When he shows up on the scene, no matter how bad the predicament, you initially, you just instantly, you sigh with relief. Even Batman and his cold heart feels better when Superman shows up. I mean, the dude shows up, he's in blue tights, tells you everything is going to be okay, and you believe him 110%. He's Superman, he's got it under control. And try to read this page and not give a little jump for joy, whether literally or metaphorically. Supes is on the scene, he's going to get this handled. On page 18, the, uh, <laughs> the killing machine, saying, help, help, I'm being oppressed. How awesome is the fact that this genetic bomb feels like Superman is oppressing him? This was both uh, hilarious and unnerving. Plus a nice reference to Monty Python. The thing w was created to kill. It manages to give a speech worthy of an Oprah episode. And these are the little things that make this series stand out for me. Now jumping ahead to pages 23 to 27, Superman saves the day by extending his own bioelectric field. I arched an eyebrow for only about a split second. Compared to shooting rainbows or a smaller version of himself from his hands, this is pretty tame. Byrne even had tried to use the, a version of tactile telekinesis to explain Superman's powers. And then there is super ventriloquism from back in the day. So this wasn't completely out of, out of whack. And back on Tatooine slash the moon, Supes pushes against the same strange plunger. I, I, some, I don't even know what this thing is supposed to be, but okay. Uh, and his strength has quadrupled and still going. I think one of my favorite things about this book and this scene is Leo Quintum. Leo Quintum is a scientist, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that down the road, just to give you an overview. <laughs> he has the coolest coat. You've heard of the Amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. This dude is wearing it. He's kind of like a spacefaring Willy Wonka. I, I just love this guy. And um, as whimsical as he is, when he tells you when he tells you Superman is going to die. It certainly takes some of the sheen off that Technicolor coat. Now, as far as Quintum, uh, there's something I want to touch on. There's a big debate here. A lot of fans have uh, been going on for years about whether Leo Quintum is indeed Lex Luthor. Now, don't completely shrug it off. There are some valid points raised. Uh, Leo versus Lex. X versus O. And the line, I'm trying to escape from a doomed world to Superman. It's called the past. Now, I don't think it will, but All-Star Superman could return if Grant Morrison ever chose to as a one-shot or another mini-series. And maybe Morrison was laying the groundwork. After all, he did plant the seeds for Final Crisis way back in the Rock of Ages storyline from way back in the 90s. The theory is that after the events that we're going to see uh, down the line of this uh, epic, um, that, Le that Lex would have traveled back in time and uh, worked for the side of good. There's never been a confirmation or a denial, but uh, there are a couple of links that I put in the PDF this week. Take a look at those. Email them if you've got a theory. I'd love to hear that. But Leo Quintum is the uh, really the only original character in this 
well, not the only one, but major original character that will come into much more importance a little bit down the road. For now, let's move on to 30 and 33. Uh, there's something about a scene filled with the weird science projects that makes me giddy. Takes me back to the Silver Age. A Voyager Titan, Bizarro Drones, Agatha reading Superman's DNA, that is priceless. I love the nonchalant way that this advanced science is being introduced. I like that it's just a background piece, and Superman, being Superman, having seen it all, is pretty blasé about it. And what really stands out is Superman agreeing that a replacement clone of, of himself is a smart thinking. Superman's always had a, I hate to say it like this because it will get some disagreement, but uh, for lack of a better description, a childlike innocence, maybe a bit of naive, naivete, and uh, a lot of times that can be confused for gullibility. That's not what it is. He tr he actually seems to trust Quintum, and maybe there's a backstory there, or maybe he can read DNA and knows it's Lex and knows this is a reformed Lex. So the audience is left to dis decide if this is blind trust or earned trust. And the second thing is the Voyager Titan looks like Dr. Manhattan. I mean, look close. I don't know if that was intentional or if the edict was just to make a creepy giant blue thing. I, I wouldn't even be surprised if Grant Morrison's script called for a genie like Robin Williams in Aladdin. Now moving on to pages 34 and 35, Superman's dual identity as Clark Kent has never been more plausible than in this series. I remember when the initial designs came out in Wizard, it blew my mind. And it's something that when anybody in public calls me out, uh, how do you think glasses would stop people from really believing, knowing he's Superman? This is good. It's a masterstroke. Clark shifting his body to create a dumpy potbelly is believable. Quietly shows us how a pair of glasses and a different mannerisms can change a person into somebody else. And you actually almost forget reading the book. And the best part uh, here is the background. While Clark is stumbling and mumbling, he's actually actually helping people under the radar. I mean, he can knock a guy over or let, let him get hit by a flying muffler. And I thought, you know, you can say what you say about your day-to-day -day choices, but those are the types of choices that Superman makes every ten minutes. And wrapping up issue number one is the big reveals. Clark reveals to Lois that he is Superman. Knowing he's dying, knowing that he's only got a limited amount of time left on Earth, he reveals his secret to Lois. And really, we don't even see the reaction. A dropped bag of apples, it just says it all. There's no dialogue, no gasp, and quite Leah Morrison leave you, the reader, to fill in that gap, which is kind of the touchstone of storytelling when it's done right. And uh, in this scene, done right, it's simple, silent, but effective. So now we're uh, up to issue number two. And you don't get more Silver Age than this cover. The, the text, can you guess the secret of Superman's hidden room? That should have been on Action Comics Annual back in the, in the 60s. I can't guess it, but I want to. And then we see Lois with a laser gun and Superman hunched over by some mysterious object with this huge looming shadow on the wall. Even if I weren't a Superman fan, I would at least want to thumb through this issue when I saw it on the rack. It's creepy yet inviting, and the expression on Lois's face tells the entire story. Admittedly, it took me three issues to get used to Quietly's Lois. I think initially it was, I was thrown off because she looked like Kristen Krupp to me, and uh, very Lana. But in retrospect, it's a fresh design. It doesn't deviate too far from Lois, and it really kind of looks like Summer Glau from Firefly or Serenity which is a welcome change, but it is one that took some adjusting. Now, beginning with issue number two, uh, pages one through three, how cool is it? And just 
ironic that after years of trying to prove that Clark Kent is Superman, Lois simply does not believe him. This is a great move by Morris and really a fresh take on the Lois Clark Superman dynamic. And also the Fortress of Solitude. It's straight classic with the sun setting out and casting a sweet color effects on the mountain's face. It's just a gorgeous shot. It looks, uh, in this case, so much more realistic than the movie's Crystalline Palace or even the uh, Silver Age Ridge of Rock. It's right in the middle of the mountain. Looking at that mountain, I can almost hear the echo. It's classic, and yet again with a modern twist, all in one swoop, which is, once again, sums up the, the book as a whole. I remember getting this book uh, monthly out of my pool list, or bi-monthly, I should say, since it didn't come out monthly. But there would always be that uh, excitement, because you start seeing these Silver Age concepts coming to your pool list every other month. And I never, ever felt like the bi-monthly schedule was a bad thing. It always felt worth the wait just because I like reading Silver Age stories. Those were fun. And I like the modern sensibility of looking at them through, um, I, I hate to use this term, but a post-9-11 world. Um, I think we, we took a lot more things for granted, obviously, in the Silver Age. And suddenly uh, we're looking at the same things, but just from a different point of view. Anyway, I'm rambling. Let's go ahead and move on to page four where uh, we have a new key to the Fortress of Solitude. I mean, how genius is it to update this key without discarding the original larger concept? And I always wondered if maybe a plane would be thrown off course when Superman took the key off its perch, because after all, it was disguised as a direction marker in the Arctic. So uh, good to know that you know we've upgraded to a key that you can... Uh, you know, just only Superman can lift, and it's much more demure. And uh, and pages 8 and 9, the inside of the Fortress of Solitude, yes, that is the Titanic. Upon an initial scan, the big, big main hall of the Fortress looks barren until you realize that is a big, big boat sitting there. <laughs> just the perspective, it takes you a minute. And this was the point where I got giddy about getting this book, you know, bi-monthly. This is where that excitement started. The statues of Superman's friends and foes are there, um, which like looks like also a Kryptonian war suit. So you've got the old Silver Age mixed with the modern. Uh, also the bottle city of Kandor and the space shuttle Columbia. Now the book was actually published following the shuttle's destruction. And it seems to appear here as a sad homage to what could have uh, saved if Superman existed, which is always a thought process. I think any Superman fan would mind, you know, going through a tragic time or watching uh, tragedy like uh, you know disasters what if Superman was here and that's kind of a that's uh, a reminder I mean that definitely indicates something and the time sphere that's a welcome addition uh, being able to see Superman's multiple you know descendants and family from the future and uh, the Superman robots actually look appropriately alien here without going uh, more burn era where they were just uh, oddly shaped little beings. They're a little scary, but they're definitely an upgrade from the older models, which were basically Superman with a control panel as chest. I got the action figure. I can prove it. And I just love the space here. It's a second page splash of the issue. And it visually shows how epic this story is. We've had two in a row. Now, I know I complained about that happening in The Last Sun, but I think the difference here is this needed that space. You needed that oh factor. Where in Last Sun, you kind of already had it at that point. It could have been done in one. 
and um, that's just it works here it didn't work there and on page 10 how great is it that we, we begin seeing Lois from the outside and then vulnerable and nude very tastefully though as she sorts through her doubts and fears this is good visual storytelling I mean, it's just a simple mechanic and it works and it works here really well and to cap off this great page the awkward exchange in the bottom panel is pitch perfect from the stance Lois is in to the the singing plant from Alpha Centauri 4 to the blank background making the scene more intimate just makes you really look at these two like they're meeting for the first time and their fears and insecurities are laid kind of bare so wow good storytelling and moving on to page 14 Superman has a pet sun eater he feeds him miniature suns from a cosmic anvil he picked up from New Olympus this man is a player uh, seriously in the uh, Grant Morrison Mark Wade Mark Millar Pyre Superman 2000 or Superman now pitch there was talk of making Superman less human and more alien and when you find your pet prowling around the orbit of Jupiter you are an alien I like how uh, I don't want to say aloof uh, just very casual Superman is he talks as if everybody should have a baby Sun Eater and it's just an illustration of how Superman could see his, this every day these things mere mortals can only try to imagine. But it's also sad because it, it shows that no matter how hard he tries, Superman can't be human and will always be alienated. And moving on to pages 18 and 20, Superman and Lois have dinner on the Titanic. It seems like a setup for a joke. But Superman is a snazzy dresser in his traditional Kryptonian formal wear and proves that real men do so. And I, you know, I love the explanations that Soup is giving for how he and Clark can be in the same place. A Superman robot or Batman standing in, where well-worn Silver Age tropes happen all the time. But I think the, the dialogue here really just, it, it does take you to that other's perspective without sacrificing what was good about the Silver Age. Was that it was anything goes. Yeah, Soup, throw Batman in there. That'll work. Even though if you really tear those Silver Age stories apart... They just weren't very canny. But, man, were they fun. And I love reading them. And here we get a dose of reality. It's something I mentioned a few episodes back, um, going through, I believe it was the Up, Up, and Away storyline. Superman has been lying to Lois for years. Now, this was the moment where I actually thought about that. And it hasn't left me yet for the last few years. Superman is a bastion of honesty and integrity. Well, except for this one teeny lie awkward much Lois calls Superman out which is what Lois should be doing that's what uh, you know I talked about the relationship between Lois and Clark she uh, challenges him and in this instance she leaves the Man of Steel staggered so the stark black and white display in literal form play well is it a literal translation of Lois realization or it does it you know play more into the plot in the next few pages we'll find out and thankfully we are left scratching our heads for a few panels before Lois explains. Pages 21 through 22. The Mirror of Truth sequence. Superman is vulnerable yet again. We're actually getting inside his head in a way I don't think we ever have in, in, in his entire history. I mean, perhaps we've seen allusions to this, but this is, once again, no dialogue. Just a simple vision. Um, Lois admitting with some degree of superficiality at the same time that perhaps she couldn't live with the fact that Hump Bumbling Clark can't live somewhere within Superman. 
She can't coincide. Those two don't sync up for her yet. And panel three here on page 22 captures Superman perfectly. No matter how hard he tries to hide behind Clark's dumpy demeanor, how much he would like to be human, Superman, human, <laughs> no matter how much he would like to be human, he's still Superman and he can't escape that. It's like a shadow. It only varies depending on the light hitting it. And Morrison really amps up the emotions here. I mean, quietly nails it. Panel 4, page 22, focuses on Lois clenching her teeth while the rest of her face is faded and blurred. Raw emotion on these pages, untethered, and it says more about Lois and Clark's relationship than any whole issue of the incontinuity books have come close to in the last few years. On pages 24 and 25, there's a line that just bothers me. It just bothers me to no end, and it's always bothered me. Who is J-Lo? I just didn't like the joke. It was forced and awkward. And I'm not saying Grant Morrison is above pop culture reference as a joke. But I'm saying he is better than this one. However, there is a bit of redemption for the unknown Superman of 4500 AD and the fact that he is the current Superman in an undetermined, uh, semi-undetermined near future. And the seeds of that Morrison is laying here will sprout heartache by issue number six. Even now, I can feel that issue coming and it breaks my heart. And earlier in the issue, we saw the time telescope display Calcant, the Superman of the 853rd century. Both of these Superman cameos may seem like one-offs, but they're actually vital to the story later. And that may be what I like best about this. There really are no throwaway lines or scenes. The book uh, just works as a haiku, a specific rhythm, rhyme, and reason. It's not a traditional narrative, because you don't see how the, all these come together till the end. But it is a really good really tight story you just don't realize it at the time it's subliminal and while the j-lo joke it may be a criticism no work is perfect and the series isn't perfect but this is pretty close to a perfect superman story and of course it does build upon past superman stories so i'm not diminishing the credit to those original stories but what grant morrison is putting in this issue is major and you just don't realize it at the time now if you're reading along don't blink the Sun Eater, the DNA, even the thing that looks like a universe in a box from page 12, they all have a purpose, which will be revealed at the precise moments. Additionally, Morrison also has, uh, it ties All-Star Superman into his DC 1 million event, as I mentioned, that was part of it, and at least it was in terms of prior to Infinite Crisis. It, it was canon. As far as I know, it, it actually came back recently in Superman Batman, so it should still be canon. I just don't know how much or how, how little because they're keeping that vague. And there's a huge list of connections um, out there online. You can just Google that. I'm not going to kill more time here. Uh, page 29. Ow. That's all Superman says after Lois Lane shoots him with kryptonite laser beams. She doesn't even do it by accident. Luckily, Superman is now apparently immune to kryptonite, which means Morrison is now driving with the headlights and seatbelts off. Kryptonite is the ultimate backdoor for Superman. Just ask anybody, ask any of the writers that write Smallville. And with this scene, Morrison states clearly, I'm not phoning this one in. This is not a paycheck. This is my Superman opus, and I've waited for years to tell this. And the shock on Lois's face is priceless. And that end, uh, moving on to issue number three, the serum that we see on in Superman, All-Star Superman number two, giving Super, uh, Lois the uh, powers of Superman for 24 hours. 
that's where this will come in in this issue number three. Issue number three, the, the cover wasn't iconic, but the image of Superman and Clark being emasculated by a bold Lois, it had a ton of charm. And also, Lois has the most vivid expression on her face. Now, on page one, this may be a continuity error. I've kind of discussed it with some people. But the vial we saw in issue number two, it was uh, loose, open, and says, Lois, this is your birthday present. In this, the vial is wrapped in a package that appears in Superman's hand on the next to last page. So, there, but we've actually discussed that even though the cat was out of the bag, Superman would still go to the trouble of wrapping that. That's my theory. Page two, Kroll. Kroll. He was created by Morrison because he believed that Superman's rogues were stale. I'll give him that. Some of the rogues have been just rehashed over and over again. And Kroll looks like a, a cross between the Thing, Devil Dinosaur, and Mr. T, which is awesome. And I also like that his foot soldiers look like Koopa Troopas from the Super Mario Brothers movie. Not that I've seen that movie. It's not in my DVD collection. Uh, page three, Steve Lombard. He just rocks. He's hilarious. He's nice as comic relief, and this is kind of an old throwback to the Bronze Age. And how about a good hunk of just prime American manhood? Lombard could have been a throwaway character, but he does use him as great skill as comic relief. That's really where this character comes in, and I, and I also like the close-up of Jimmy Olsen's Nike-inspired Super Watch. We're getting a little bit more into that. I'd love to see more about that Super Watch and how much it really does. And on page four, I have a gripe. I have a big gripe. Wouldn't Lois have a learning curve on using Superman's powers? And, oh, and hide your children, or Kroll will eat them. I love Kroll, but Lois seems to just kind of snap right to the powers, and that kind of bothers me, because even Superman had a learning curve on his own powers. And page six, Samson shows up. He has no belt. Look closely on panel three. Samson has no belt. And I'm still glad to see Samson. I love Samson. Camp makes a major comeback in a good way here. Camp can be a great weapon, and Morrison wields it like a Jedi wielding a lightsaber. And page 8, Superman sighs that a dinosaur dictator's lungs have burst. Like you or I whine about being out of milk. That's how, that's how Superman sees the world. Superman, uh, Morrison's painting him like an earthbound uh, god with a lower G, lowercase g. And uh, at, then Atlas shows up. Atlas returns, and I've been waiting for the right time to bring this up. The mainstream Superman titles... Really, just totally ripped off this book following Infinite Crisis. I know those are the books I'm going through. That's kind of my stock and trade. But for S Superman, gained some new powers after one year later. Even the proto-Rotro Lex Luthor is coming right off of this. At the time that Infinite Crisis happened, this book was a little under halfway done. And uh, it's just you can see they cherry-picked some of this book but based on the editorial staff after rejecting Morrison's Superman 2000 pitch, which contained most of these same elements. So bringing Atlas back to the mainstream, which we're going to see um, later on down the road in Superman titles, sorry for the spoiler, but uh, it, I would, it, it had to have something to do with this, right? I mean, it could, it had to have. But on page 10, we see the term Dinozar. That just exudes coolness. But <laughs> Looking close, does Samson look like Spirit from G.I. Joe in these panels, or is it just me? Now, page 10. I've learned how to win a girl's heart. 
am psyched because if I wasn't married, this was this is good advice. So if you're not married, take this down. How to win a girl? Give her radioactive crown jewels. I mean, can we have more into a superhero romantic comedy? And I I do uh, kind of really want some Triceratops Bourgnon. That does sound good. Page fourteen. Samson Lois can't look at your belt buckle when you're not wearing a belt. See, it all comes back. So no comic is perfect. It may have been just a miscommunication between Morrison and and Quietly. And on page sixteen, we see Samson basically giving Superman the bird. Nothing colder than telling your rival that you're basically warming up his lady for the imminent death that is coming for him. Oh snap! And page 24, Atlas can't seem to get into a comfortable position. I think that is priceless. Just as priceless as the boulder falling on Lois's head as they're arm wrestling, and the look on her face like, oh, fooey. It really is just the nuances, the small bits in All-Star Superman that set it apart from some of the other Superman tales, the details. Kind of like that uh, spell-checked Leo Quintum. Who thinks of that? And on page 28, no words can do justice to the kiss on the moon. Some that would come close are maybe epic, breathtaking, perfect, iconic maybe. But that's what All-Star Superman is. It's iconic. Superman, or Morrison, by assuming all continuity was valid, he was able to pick the very best and broadest elements of the Superman mythology and plunge a classic feel into the book while simultaneously updating the book at the same time. Non-comic fans could approach the story and enjoy it, and longtime fans got an extra thrill by seeing these classic and Silver Age tropes make their return. And the book was never above going tongue-in-cheek, while maintaining a consistent story all the way through the book. And this image may be the crowning achievement of that iconic stature. But there is more to come. And I'm speaking of consistent storytelling, on page 31, the Ultra Sphinx was thwarted by a car ad. Talk about being pwned. Just a clever bit of writing there. And once again... It is. It really is the little things, the little details that just make this book. So let's move on to issue number four. It's a it's a Jimmy Olsen issue right there. It's win it's score. I'm psyched, and I love the fact that his apartment is so chock full of references to the Silver Age. You can't even. I can't. I couldn't even bring them all in. There's a Turtle Boy picture on the wall. You can see his Flame Bird costume and the Viking helmet, and the ultimate Silver Age homage: Jimmy and Drag. Morrison didn't pull that out of thin air. It was a Silver Age canon. This is humor, guys. Uh, the scene wasn't simply campy, but it was legitimately funny. And on page four, Quintum does he takes a duke in exactly seven minutes. Seriously, Morrison and Project keep bringing the awe-inspiring moments. The Electro kind bring that kitschy sci-fi element to Superman that has been missing since Mort Weisinger's era. And it doesn't have the. It doesn't have to make sense. Just let it look cool and sound cool. A purely optical language in which a greeting could blind somebody. I feel eight years old again, swooning over the adventures of Superman's pal. Now the unified theory form of a in the form of a perfect haiku on page seven. Please see issue one, pages one and two. And sometimes project does come across a little bit like Disneyland's Imagineers started a moon colony. Uh, then there's the grimy door that reads, Do not open until doomsday, and suddenly Space Mountain isn't so fun. And I feel like I'm reading an old issue of Jack Kirby's uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen on page 9, except I'm on crack. An underverse, time itself cooling into a solid. How does Morrison keep finding concepts that are so bizarre yet strangely plausible? Me, I blame drugs, and I'm pretty sure he would do. 
And on pages 14 and 15, we see black kryptonite. And I have to say I'm surprised that something that really originated on Smallville showed up here. I know the mainstream books adopted black kryptonite, but Morrison gave kryptonite, he gave it a personality. It makes sense, though. On Smallville, black kryptonite was made by superheating green kryptonite. And if this came from the Underverse with its super heavy gravity, it would compress the meteorite into its black form. Oh, oh, and it turned Superman evil. Now, Morrison turns the concept of Doomsday on its ear on page 23 as any many Silver Age transformations as Jimmy made, it was logical to have him be the one who becomes Doomsday. And this came as a shock on my first read-through many years ago. Morrison manages to keep die-hard, old-school fans surprised while never violating the sanctity of the mythos. And this is a prime example. As per the Silver Age, we have our convenient happy ending on page 28. This time it's meta by acknowledging how odd of a coincidence saving the producers of the very same ballet that Lucy Lane was going to attend with Rock Handsome. It's awesome. Rock Handsome. Jimmy's reaction of, huh, is pitch perfect. I love that Jimmy got a really good treatment in this. We don't dismiss Jimmy as just a one-note comic relief. He actually has, even if it's quirky, he has a good backstory because Jimmy does have a solid character base. And we cannot dismiss the emotion that Jimmy has when he demands that nobody be able to see Superman in this weakened state. One of the biggest cornerstones of the story is that it isn't a simple Superman fights a villain story. It's about Superman's relations, relationships with his loved ones, and the world. And Morrison put a lot of thought into how the characters feel about themselves and one another. And this was a thesis that summed up nearly 70 years of Superman lore. On page 29, all I can say is I want an infinity symbol on my bank account, and I want to be Jimmy Olsen, and I want to hack through firewalls and write on the surface of the moon. And it's rare that you find a book that really just makes you want to be Jimmy Olsen. So moving on to issue number five, the cover. This is one of my favorite issues and covers. It's comical, but the danger is real. Lex Luthor protects mild-mannered Clark Kent from an angry mob of prisoners. Sweet. So on page one, let's go ahead and get into this. Luther should be proud to make the list am- among such historical villains as Attila the Hun and Hitler. I wouldn't be proud, but Luther should be. Let me give you a little tip on page two. Never use the excuse, Superman made me do it. It does not work. Seriously. And how should evil, how, how, do you, how should you show evil on one panel? Well, on page three, we see that. We have Luther smile contentedly at his death sentence. I cannot express how much I love this Luthor. No sympathy, no humanity, just genuine evil. And the scenery is well-chewed, ladies and gentlemen. Well-chewed. And one of Luthor's best speeches happens on page four. His bibliobot just being ignored because culture is a dirty word. And once again, Clark manages to make, uh, make me cheer as he slips and saves Luthor from a potential electrocution. I actually buy his dual identity, and I wish there was more thought put into how Clark is perceived in the mainstream comics. Uh, pages 6 and 10, the Luthor-Superman dynamic has never been, and may never be, more perfectly outlined than displayed in, 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 right here in this very issue. Clark never opens his shirt to reveal the symbol, but the battle is waged. And it isn't clear whether Lex has figured out or suspected Clark's dual identity, or if he thinks he's just goading a schlubby reporter. But Lex's dialogue su- suggests at least a suspicion. Asking Clark how he feels about Superman, digging a little deeper by emphasizing that Clark doesn't feel diminished by Superman's presence. 
then Lex's talents really come out. Luthor points out that without Superman, Lois Lane would notice Clark, and even pinpoints the fact that with a little weight training, Clark's physique could rival the Man of Steel's. I read this as Lex knowing Clark is Superman. He's, fixed, he's figured it out. And he's just forcing him to spread the message while playing mind games with him at the same time. And when Luther throws the barbell down, Clark jumps and manages to almost topple a piece of equipment, weights and all. And to add insult to injury, he makes Clark Superman feel like his Luther, feel his Luther muscles. Conversely, Clark's wondering why Luther is so cavalier. He isn't just a reporter on assignment, he's Luther's arch enemy. And he's just feeling that he's just feeling Lex out to see if there's a plan or some sort of escape in in place. And Luther just maintains the upper hand, asking bluntly if Superman is pale or tired. A chess match is uh, actually being played here, and it's so rich and filled with great dialogue and camera angles that a scene with nothing but talking heads becomes more tense than an out-and-out -out brawl. Comics are an art form. Here is your proof. Now, on pages 12 and 13, Luther is monologuing again. But I get the feeling that he wants Clark Superman to know his plan. He shows us that the, he intended to come to prison to build his kingdom. And then the parasite shows up. And I can't help suspect that that's not a coincidence. That the parasite's being wheeled down the hall at this very time that Lex leads Clark by it. And if I thought Clark was Superman, what better litmus test than to wheel out a fiend who absorbs energy and would watch him blow it up? And he uses the line, brain beats brawn every time. The layout on these pages looks more complex than it is. And it's, it's very Where's Waldo, but reads surprisingly smooth. And on page 14, the parasite redesign looks great. The size of his depowered form makes him seem laughable, until page 3 when he turns into a vicious blob with teeth. The fact that his legs remain small, that was a good touch. On page 16, I could eat this Luthor with a spoon quietly surveying and com commenting on the chaos as if it was just part of his plan. And uh, a new twist on Clark saving the day while concealed happens on page 17. I cheer every time I see the panel where he jacks the armed inmate in the face with his own gun. There's more genius on pages 18 and 19 with Clark faking an asthma attack to freeze a mob, wiping his glasses to use heat vision. All these have been used before, but the suave presentation sets that apart. And on page 22, Clark actually fakes an earthquake to stop the parasite's rampage. Pure genius. Now on page 24, this is what I was talking about earlier, where you could see the rage just bubbling underneath Lex. And this is the first time we see Lex lose his cool here on page 24. We see the unbridled, unhinged rage beneath Luther's calm demeanor. And the question is, is he making a statement to Superman? Or is he really Gonzo? And... When Luther shakes hands with a baboon in a Superman suit named Leopold, there are no words, seriously. It just busts me up laughing. And I think the fact that there are schematics here on display, Luther has a monkey and an escape door in his cell, and he's even allowed to have a bibliobot with a sonic drill, show that he is in control. The fascinating thing is the questions it raises. How did Luther gain control? It makes his charm and evil that much more palpable. And on page 27, the eyebrow. I roll with laughter every time I read this scene, even though Lex is explaining that he killed Superman. He's even gloating. I'm still reeling with laughter. It's perfectly timed levity to a heavy scene. Lex wants to die because he's already won, and this is perfectly mixed humor with sadistic urges. And Superman finally loses his temper a bit trying to save Luther's life. It's all a failure. 
And on page 29, we end with Clark uh, being rowed back to Metropolis by Nasty. I'll comment on her later. With the truth of Superman's condition in his care. It's a heavy burden as he now has to decide if he will tell the truth or hide his own condition. What a mind bender. The pure venom being thrown by Luthor captures the enemy's relationships pitch perfectly. Superman would rather see Luthor redeemed than dead, and Luthor would rather see Superman dead than exalted. And this issue is like a punch in the jaw. Now we're moving on to All-Star Superman number six, which is, uh, well, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to break format and kind of tell you how, why this is the most, uh, of all this series, this, is, this issue is the most important to me. Because I'd rather be honest and open and talk than, than talk about the craft with this issue. This issue brought me to real tears, and I knew it would. Uh, my dad passed away back in April of 2009, and it had been a long illness. I mean, going all the way back to 2000 when he was given six months to live. So clearly, he made it a bit further, but the last three months, months of his life was, was touch and go. And uh, I missed the call from my sister, and I found out via voicemail, and I think, you know... It may have been better that way because I couldn't talk and, you know, I had been prepared for the event or so I thought. But all I could do was shake and I pictured this issue and the scene in which a bandaged, disguised Clark has his last moment with Pa and I felt Clark desperately flying to his father's side believing he could save him. I felt that. And more than any other Superman issue, this one strikes me down emotionally. Uh, it's pure emotion and I can't look at it without being transported back to that day. Because I lived the scene where Clark asked his mom, what's the point of anything? And this issue has something tangible to it that resonates beyond the page. Even Superman can lose his way momentarily. But it's getting back up and remembering why we do what we do that makes us heroes. And this is a special issue and a special series. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't be objective about it. And it's really the turning point. And it's written and drawn with precision that's rarely seen. So I'm going to... Take this moment and uh, just thank my dad for everything he taught me and thank uh, Grant Morris and Frank Quietly for this issue for giving me a way to express myself at that time. But let's move on to issue number seven, a little less emotional. At last, Bizarro. There have been at least half a dozen vaguely similar Bizarro characters, each with a similar origin. Bizarro has been portrayed as a zombie-like monster to all the way down to a complete moron. And Morrison turns that on its ear with his rendition of Superman's imperfect duplicate. Can I coin the term suplicate? I don't know. Any reader following this, he knew you knew this was coming. The seeds were planted back in issue number one. But the the originality of this origin is what branded this rendition. After one of the bizarre workers fell into the underverse in issue number four, and you thought it was a one-off, a planet eater uses it its form and memory as a camouflage. A strange, cube-shaped camouflage. And while the proto-bizarros are pretty mundane, Supes meet up, meets up with one with them as he's uh, basically releasing his Sun Eater into the wilds of space, which is a touching scene, rendered in silence, and they drag him toward their cube-shaped planet eater in its flawed Earth disguise. And speaking of Earth, it's nighttime in December, as the Daily Planet staff celebrates the holidays. This marks the only time in this series that you see Metropolis at night, as it's Superman's descent into the darkness, as Morrison would say. The proto-Bizarro drones now act as a virus agents, infesting a person and literally stealing their form, and suddenly even the mundane Bizarros are a threat. Think the black kryptonite 
from issue number four, but sentient and contagious. And Steve Lombard has his shining moment throwing an infected alley out of a window, thanks to some, quote, performance pills, unquote. And there is the usual brawl between Superman and one of the drones who have stolen Superman's form and powers. But Jimmy Olsen steps up with an awesome idea. Since the drones are affected by sunlight, form a space mirror. A cube-shaped planet certainly has reflective oceans. And the drones on Earth are defeated, and the cubed Earth begins to descend back into the Underverse with Superman along from the ride. And deprived of sunlight, Superman will die in a short amount of time unless he can get help from Zabaro, the imperfect supplicate of an imperfect supplicate. I'm going to talk more about Zabaro in just a, just a few minutes. But Olsen having the solution was inspired. Once again, rather than using Olsen as kidnap fodder or an excuse for exposition, Morrison stepped up the character's game and made him a well-rounded character. The designs for the Bizarro drones were frightening and original, but immediately recognizable. The end result was very familiar, though. But the road, it's, the road to the result was fresh, and I, I wish the mainstream would take notice instead. They're going to contend to steal this concept. They're going to be content, pardon me. And at least we had some Eric Powell designs for the rip-off issues of Action Comics, which we, were, we will be getting to in just a matter of weeks, actually. For now, let's move on to issue number eight. In, this is one of the, the series' only really true two-parters. Most issues are more vignettes set against the backdrop of a bigger story. But here we find Superman trapped on a f the, the form of Bizarro Earth. And here we have Zabaro. Okay, on first glance, Zabaro seems laughable, even cheesy, but not in Grant Morrison's capable hands. Zabaro represents Superman's true, flawed mirror image. Remember the mirror of truth? In this instance, Zabaro is vain, he is full of self-loathing, and a little pathetic. He's basically emo Superman at his worst. He's writing poetry and talking of his alienation, and Zabaro desperately wants to leave a planet he feels is beneath him where Superman embraces the planet that's actually legitimately is beneath him. And at one point, Zabaro asks Superman, can you imagine what it's like to be so different? Yes, Superman can. He can, he has. And he uses it to make the world better. Zabaro absorbs it and channels it back into himself. He is so selfish, he simply watches as the other Bizarros assist Superman's escape. And where Superman would give his all to help another... Zabaro refuses to help in order to serve himself. And here we have the opposite effect from the Mirror of Truth back in issue number two. Superman struggled to be Clark Kent, but can only be revealed as Superman. Zabaro offers the opposite end of the spectrum. It's a cautionary vision of how Superman could have been without the lessons Pa gave him, mentioned in issue number six's eulogy. And it seals the illusion of the hero's descent into hell. And the hero wins. Zabaro shows his decent side, helping a nearly dead Superman onto the rocket where Superman praises Zabaro's writing. And the hero has shown his has been shown his darkest image and conquered it with good. And that is a Superman story. Superman can only be good. It's in his veins, and we know no other way. He is walking moral certainty. And one final note, the Unjustice League in this issue, they were more than one-note parodies. Wonder Woman being a beautiful baby turned to clay was hilarious, and Batman being shot by his parents were true opposites rather than what we see, which are not necessarily opposites, but uh, maybe a vague parody. And sharp wit will win me over every time. So let's move on to issue number nine. This was not one of my favorite issues. 
It wasn't a waste at all, but following the epic Bizarro Zabaro issues and with the upcoming super epic final three issues, this one felt a bit like a filler. Superman returns to Earth with all the charm we've come to expect, crashing to Earth near a circus upon returning to Metropolis, he finds two new Kryptonians imparting harsh justice onto the world. I'm lukewarm on the designs for Barrel and Lilo. While Zabaro was the opposite of Superman, these would be the negative mirror images of Jor-El and Lara. Rough, insulting, and bronze over brains. One interesting note is that Bar-El notices that Lilo's eyes have turned green under the yellow sun. I can't recall any writer noting physical changes in Kryptonians under our environment, which made me wonder, but this may also, this is kind of tied into the cause of their downfall. So at the moment, it was such a small detail that it may have been missed, or you may have thought it was different, but give me a moment, I'll get to that. The detail of the Superman robot reaching for the fortress key and losing an arm shows a consistency to the writing, keeping with issue number two when Superman was the only being capable of lifting the key. Speaking of consistency, the placement of the artifacts in the fortress is perfect. Many times the fortress is ambiguous in terms of layout, especially in the Silver Age. Some white walls and everything else is in flux. But here, everything matches perfectly to the splash page reveal in issue number two. I love consistency. And Jimmy's choice in fashion isn't just a need to reflect pop culture. Jimmy knows Clark is Superman. I mean, it's been implied. And we're going to find a confirmation a little bit later. And he's goading him to stand up to the two Kryptonians while also settling why Superman wears the trunks outside of the pants. And we see a reflection of Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow when Barrel and Lilo confront Clark Kent. Luckily, the Kryptonians succumb to radioactive molecules of kryptonite before burning his suit off and setting off that sad chain of events. And the story's emotional core is revealed a little too close to the end as Barrel cries out, cries out, Lilo, why can't I see you? against a black panel. The Kryptonians have a soft center, after all, and Clark is able to give them life by the way of a reverse Jor-El. And where Jor-El and Lara sent their son to Earth to survive, the son now returns the feat by sending his family members into the Phantom Zone, and that is the best part of this issue, is the closing of the circle. And the shot of Bar-El and Lilo standing ready to dispense justice to the Phantom Zone criminals gave a great ending to a rather sad story. The issue was an okay read. This is probably the biggest weakest issue of the of the entire run and, and it may have just been dragged down by the really epic previous issues and the subsequent issues which we're about to get into now page or pardon me issue number 10 we're heading into it this is this is the epic part and i can't believe that all this happened in one issue i mean superman flies a busload of sick kids around the pyramids superman writes in his giant steel diary with a huge technical technological upgrade from using his fingernail Quintum in the flamebird suit, and that's what Jimmy gets for stealing that colorful coat. Ah, pardon me, colorful coat. And the giant man of steel and Lois using the diversion to get Superman's attention. Uh, the imagery of Superman seeing 335,000 dead skin cells shows us that he is entering a power level kind of like Godhead, Godhood, Godhood. It's poetic and a little disgusting, like promises, like the dust of dead stars. Okay, that's a little bit much, but. It may have been the most amazing compliment he can show Lois is, you know, who is being a very much beneath him, but he never realizes it. And Reagan, the suicidal girl that gave that Superman stops to save. 
If you read this page and you are not moved, you are dead inside. This is perhaps the greatest Superman scene in in the past decade. And definitely, definitely in the past decade. And this quiet moment in panel five where Superman hugs her, there really are no words to do justice to the emotional potency of that scene. It's just truly remarkable and we see in such a simple way, a straightforward way, Superman's compassion. Because chaos is happening all around him, but he stops for that one person. And once again, showing compassion, he makes the attempt to reach Luthor, visiting him in the prison. And as I always said, as I said, Superman has a childlike innocence, but he's stubborn at the same time. He believes in that innocence and has the adult's fortitude to follow through with it. And that should not be confused for complete naivete. Superman believes in humanity to the point that he would trust his very genetic code in the survival of Kandor to a near stranger. He sees the very pinnacle of potential and we have as a species and he simply cannot give up on Lex, not with so much at stake. And he makes one last appeal to the man Lex could be and in Luthor's response, a futile wad of spit on the window. And Kandor is finally given a chance to live on Mars. Why couldn't Super Age, Silver Age Superman figure that one out? I know we had the imaginary story with Superman Red, Superman Blue, but uh, why would we not have figured that out? And what's great is Superman, that little universe in the corner, Earth Q, it's developed Nietzsche before the lunch hour is over. Nietzsche, as you know, is where the term Superman came from. And remember those sick kids at the beginning of the issue? Get ready for a miracle in the form of nano-Kandorians. And remember Earth Q? Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster have an epiphany of a man in blue with S on his chest. And I can't believe how little mainstream controversy this issue actually got. And this isn't a slam against anybody's beliefs, but when you imply that Superman is God, it should it's surprising that it didn't draw ire from those that can't separate fiction from religious statements. Uh, this it was just it really slid right under the radar and I, I don't think there was much controversy which is shocking and this issue actually just reminded me a lot of that superman red superman blue story where our heroes uh, made the world a better place before leaving for their respective retirements we're really getting the message superman is dying and there's no turning back this was the epoch of an epic it's a series where the sh series really shifted gears and all the little seeds Morrison has carefully been planting along the way begin to tie together into the finale of, this, of all finales. And back at issue 11, almost to the end, guess what hits the fan here? Luther's other shoe drops as he's meeting his fate at the electric chair. He's stolen the 24-hour superpower formula from issue number 2 and he now has Superman's powers for 24 hours. He rips, burns, and smashes his way out of prison on his way to the final showdown with Superman. And the scenes which Superman is shutting down the fortress and reflecting on his life really begin to make this realize the end is near. His robots coming to his aid at the end and, and the ceiling of the fortress are genuinely moving. This is their last run, and they cannot leave their master. Save the lone robot walking away from the sealed door. I can stare at this for an hour just bathing in the finality of it. Now, Superman's new costume, which is a reference to Battle of the Planets, it's snazzy, and thankfully it lasts for just the right amount of time. And remember Robot Number 7 having system issues in issue number 2? That was the Tyrant's son stealing the 24-hour super formula. Not a thing out of place, not a single cop-out. And he atones marvelously by sacrificing himself. And the Sun Eater's death affected me more than I thought. Once again, nothing out of place. This background 
object is brought to the forefront at the precise moment to emotionally punch you right in the face. And then there's Jimmy sweet-talking nasty. I love this Jimmy Olsen. Morrison treats this often sidelined character with, with, with some respect, which hasn't been done really well since Kirby. And, well, I guess some of the John Byrne era, but... And uh, we are left in the with the final cliffhanger, a superpowered Lex Luthor crashing the Daily Planet and Clark on the floor dead. It all ramped up in this issue and took your breath away. It was action, bittersweet goodbyes, meaningful deaths with purpose, overshock value. And I remember the two-month wait for this final issue was just a killer. And... When all I, I remember when All-Star Superman number 12 arrived, I put off reading it as long as I could because I knew it was the last issue and I knew we were at the end. And it was like having divorce papers delivered. You cherish the times you, you hurt at the end, but once it's over, you begin to heal. That may be a little melodramatic, but I've always been adamant that if Superman is the great American mythology, then Morrison, with, with this entire series, he finally gave me the proof. And Superman speaking with Jor-El, given the choice to exist in his own personal hell or to fight evil one last time. And of course he faces he faces evil in the final standoff by blasting Lex Luthor with a gravity gun. And Jimmy, who has that sixth sense, he hands, well, Superman disguised as Clark Kent, a convenient spare costume and a cover story, and God bless you, Jimmy Olsen. Now, Luther, filled with the power, begins to see the world through Superman's eyes, and in his epiphany, his brain is overloaded by the sheer awesomeness of his senses. Superman knew Luther's plans as issue number two, which is awesome. That means he's given the big metal finger to Luther's genius. If this scene were playing in a Superman movie, the audience would be on their feet and cheering. And before losing his powers, Lex states that the unified field theory as a haiku, perfectly articulating how meticulously laid out this 12-issue series was. He sees the world as a whole for a brief moment. Now, Superman manages to, def to defeat Lex Luthor by outsmarting him. It doesn't get any better than that, kids. He really does use his brain over bronze. And Then there's Lois and Superman's goodbye, which makes Superman number 75 look low-budget. If you could bottle this panel, it would run hybrid cars. And I can hear the epic John Williams music as Superman flies into the sun, sparking it back to life. Then a brief fade to black. The last shot of the Daily Planet with the long panel shows us how empty a world without Superman is. How can one page be so monumental? The shot of Superman on the sun, a golden god keeping us safe. He has ascended. And it isn't the death of Superman, but the birth of something greater, beyond our comprehension, and I can't help but sigh in awe. And the teaser, the one final stitch of Superman's descendants, his, prod, his legacy, project, and the two on the door. Morrison could have easily left us in our sadness, but gives us blazing hope for the future. As Superman inspired the world to achieve a higher purpose, Morrison left us inspired for the potential spawn of Superman. Now, if Morrison himself has the best words for the conclusion of this series, and uh, so I think I'll let, I'll kind of just quote the man and let, let him speak for himself. The quote from Morrison is, What I hope is that people, people take from it the unlikelihood that a piece of paper with with little ink drawings of figures, with little written words can make you cry, can make your heart sore, can make you scared, sad, or thrilled. How mental is that? That piece of paper is inert material, the corpses of some tree, pulped and poured, then given new meaning and a new life, when the real hours and real emotions that the writer and the artist and the colorist, the letterer, 
the editor translated onto the physical page. Meet with the real hours and emotions of a reader, of all readers at once, across time, generations, and distance. And think about how that experience, the simple experience of interacting with a paper comic book, along with hundreds of thousands of others across time and space, is an actual doorway to the beating heart of the imminent, timeless world of myth, as defined above. Not just a thawing of it, but an actual doorway into timelessness and the immortal world where we can, we were all together. So there we are. We've gone through a crash course on All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. And I, I hope you guys enjoyed it you know, as much as I did. I hope you were able to read along. And uh, just a couple of final notes. I do want to apologize for some of, to some of my fellow Superman uh, podcasters. Um, I have not had it uh, finished up. Uh, getting all the promos, you know, ready to put into my show, which I've done you a great disservice, and I do apologize. It's not because I don't want to. It's not because I'm snubbing you. It's simply because I just um, my schedule's been crazy, and I will have that for next week. Because at this point, with this episode wrapped, I am finally caught up, which is a glorious feeling. So I will have all those promos to uh, kind of use as bumpers between the segments next week. So look forward to that. And of course, you know that uh, you can always. Uh, stumble on your words like I just did. No, you can always uh, go to supermanforever.com. Um, I have uh, links to all of our the fellow Superman podcasts. If I've missed anybody, email me at mail at supermanforever.com and let me know. And that wraps us up for this week. It's been kind of a long week. And next week we'll be back to normal. Luckily I have a head start, so half of my notes are done. And uh, we'll have a get back on track, go on through... Um, finishing up Last Sun, or starting to finish up Last Sun, wrap up that Superman, Batman, Enemies Among Us story arc, and of course, you know, moving forward with Camelot Falls in the not-crypto issue, and of course, Superman Confidential number two, and uh, we get back on track with our Superman the Anim Animated Series reviews with uh, Last Sun of Krypton number two, we'll take a look at our character, uh, should be Lois Lane if I have it listed here, ironically, and uh you know, certainly I'll be happy to have you back. And I, I apologize if I do sound like a bumbling idiot. I usually work with quite a bit, few notes because uh, just being me on the podcast, I tend to get off on tangents a lot if I don't have notes. So I'm working with next to no notes uh, in this. And I just hope I didn't come off like a bumbling idiot. But I do appreciate everybody listening. I do appreciate it. Don't forget to go to supermanforever.com. I have uploaded a special ringtone from Mr. Darkside. He has provided that for us. And there will be a PDF. I don't. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. There's a PDF covering all my notes in the, with uh, scans for the first issue of Superman um, of All Star Superman. Pardon me. And of course, there is an iPhone wallpaper. It's all All Star Superman themed. So do uh, please visit SupermanForever.com. I'll be posting there a little bit more often. I've got my mobile posting options upgraded a little bit. And of course, I'm on uh, Tumblr at SupermanForever.tumblr.com. I am on Twitter. I am at Superman, the number four ever, Superman forever. And, of course, I am uh, always available on iTunes. Please stop by and leave me a review. And over at the Superman Podcast Network at thefortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcast. And that wraps us up for this week. I do appreciate you listening again. And uh, next week we'll be back on track. And uh, don't forget to go out this Tuesday, February 22nd, and pick up your own copy of the All-Star Superman DVD. Or Blu-ray. So until I, I see you next week, keep fighting the never-ending battle.
Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademark of DC Comics, Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.